everybody and welcome to episode 37 of Life and Life Only. And this is Travelling Light slash Pure Heaven, referring to two stories I wrote a number of years ago that I'm going to read to you with the traditional interjections in hopefully the right places. One of them is a light story, as you might guess from the title, and the other is a little bit darker, but with ultimately an inspirational message. To set the scene, it's 1.30pm here in England on Saturday, April the 8th. It's a sunny day today. For my uh, Glass Onion on John Lennon listeners, for those who don't know, I have a podcast about John Lennon. It's Julian Lennon's 60th birthday today. That's John's first son, which pretty much makes it Beatlemania's 60th birthday. I mean, not to the day, but around this period, as it was starting to happen in April 1963. Arguably, I suppose it was the release of She Loves You in August that was the point of no return. But anyway, lots of 60th anniversaries this year related to the rise of the Beatles in Britain before they conquered the US in 1964. And I'm about one minute 30 into this. and I'm already talking about one of my other podcasts. Let's get back on track. The original idea for this, I was going to do an episode called Unplanned Thoughts, inspired by the Roma episodes of the podcast Tangentially Speaking, by Chris Ryan. Chris Ryan is the author of Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death. I've read Civilized to Death, very, very good book. I would say that his podcast and uh, Julian Charles's The Mime Renewed were probably the main inspirations for Life and Life Only, even though the ideas were brewing for a number of years. So Chris Ryan does these, uh, as I said, Roma episodes. You know, he jots down a few things and he talks about maybe places he's travelled to, because he still does a lot of travelling, even though I think he's about 60 years old now. He talks about observations from books he's read, podcasts he's listened to, and um, he's a person who would fit perfectly into this podcast, and I have considered getting him on as a guest. He seems to have done lots of guest appearances and seems to be pretty open to them, so you may well hear from Chris Ryan on this podcast in the future. On these Roma episodes, he just trusts, I guess, that, as he starts talking, stuff will come into his head, insights and, like I said, observations. And I kind of feel the same way with myself. I've, I've come to trust myself a bit more and say, well, jot down a few notes. Yeah, I'm reading a couple of stories here today, but um, I've got enough anecdotes and uh, particularly travel experiences, which fits well with one of the stories I'm going to be reading today, to trust that good stuff will come out. And uh, hopefully that's what will happen today. Of course, me being Mr. Teacher, unplanned thoughts became, uh, well, I do a little bit of planning. I write down a few prompts. And then, of course, the ideas generator went crazy. But I haven't written this out, just got lots of prompts. With my English teaching, I have a nice left brain, right brain teaching style. I do mostly online now. But in the 18 years, I think it was, I was teaching in classrooms, which I may well return to in the future. But obviously, it's harder to get that work in England itself. But I had a modus operandi where I planned more than I needed, which is the left brain side, you might say. So then once I got in there, I could then improvise, or not improvise, but go with the flow. And uh, that was more the right brain, you know. So plan more than you need and then feel comfortable freewheeling in the moment, if you like, and deciding which of the stuff you plan to use. Very important. I'm going to talk more about flow, not necessarily the book flow, but the flow of conversations. Like I say, this podcast is going to be two stories, but with a whole host of other stuff 
topics of interest and stuff I've observed recently. Basically, if you like the show, if you're a regular listener to Life and Life Only, I think you're going to love this. And in fact, while planning, I found connections between these apparently disparate topics that I jotted down. Anyway, for those who haven't listened to this podcast before, Life and Life Only is a search for inner and outer truth. So it's got two general strands. The inner truth is to do with self-development, life coaching, which I'm going to talk about in a second. And, you know, getting yourself armor-plated to take on this crazy world and the world of work and all the politics that goes with that. And then the outer truth is to do with some of the information that we get fed. I'm uh, very, very sceptical of mainstream media, and that's come through studying things. I was I worked with activists for a while. You know, I went down the conspiracy route for a long time, the old rabbit hole. Found uh, quite a lot of it was true. Some of it wasn't. The activists I worked with were 80 to 90% of them just very reasonable people who were interested in researching the world. And then you got a few people who did latch on to any theory they could get their hands on. I'll talk about the conspiracy theory stereotyping later on. I just thought, actually, I wanted to just quickly bosh through the episodes of the podcast that we've already done, just the, literally the titles and a quick comment, just to give new listeners a flavour of the show, and even to refresh it for myself and for the regular listeners. So the titles, we've got Cynicism and Free Thought, which was looking at how it wasn't necessarily always negative to be cynical about things, cynical slash sceptical. Some thoughts on truth, and then there was a two-parter on meditation. Did one called The Power of Psychology with Austin Moore, who's an NLP practitioner. James Corbett, who's an alt-media legend. We did one called Alternative Information and Everyday Propaganda, making the point that we are propagandized, yeah, literally on a daily basis. The next one was a, about uh, conspiracy theory, a powerful phrase. That was something I wrote uh, a long time ago, looking at the weaponization of the phrase there to shut down debate. And then a very different episode about the true crime story, 10 Rillington Place, which took place in the 40s and 50s in England. I did a three-parter on emotional intelligence, reading parts from the book, the Daniel Goldman book. And then I had Douglas Valentine in, who's an expert on the Vietnam War, specifically the Phoenix program and also the CIA in general. And there was Blue Suede Truths, music for inner and outer truth, so very much the flavour of the podcast. That was with Julian Charles. That was recorded quite a long time ago for his show. I did a deep dive on the Black Mirror episode, Nose Dive, which was about a possible near future related to the social credit system in China, but taken to extremes where everywhere you go everybody you see has a rating and you rate each other in every single interaction you have that was an absolute masterpiece uh, not my episode i mean the the episode of black mirror called nosedive definitely um, seek that one out then there was war is a racket so i was reading the smedley butler book of the same name obviously talking about the fact that war is a, a business and then there was a tragedy comedy about table tennis that's the thing about this podcast occasionally you get some real outliers. I call that the way of the nervous official. I did one called Life Coaching, Creativity, Communal Experience and Mental Health, weaving those together. Then I had a discussion slash debate with an academic called Ricky Green, who contributed to some academic papers about how conspiracy theorists have insecure attachments, and that's why they latch on to conspiracy theories. 
Again, I would apply that to about 10% of the people I met, you know, the activists slash conspiracy researchers. But anyway, episode 20 was mopping up some of the notes I'd made that I hadn't got to when I did that discussion with Ricky. Then there was propaganda in the COVID era. That was with Julian Charles again. That was recorded for his show, but it's basically a swap cast. Then I did um, an episode, uh, very long, two and a half hours, about Nick Drake. He's one of my favourite musicians. And there was a lot of psychology stuff about mental health in there. Then there was a three-parter on the art of happiness, which was the book uh, co-authored by the Dalai Lama. Then I had a talk with a Nick Drake biographer, Patrick Humphreys. Then we had an uplifting conversation about depression with Simon Weitzman, which, as the title suggests, we were talking about depression, but uh, as I said, trying to be uplifting about it, trying to dispel a few myths about it as well. Next one was a profile on the excellent podcast Pods Like Us, a podcast about podcasts, hosted by Martin Crabell. Then I did one about Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, which I think is a work of utter genius, both uh, comedically and in the profundity of its message, basically telling you that politics is bullshit. That was a what I'd probably call a truth comedy. It was obviously put out as a comedy by the BBC in the 70s and 80s, but it was it used uh, real-life politicians, interviews with them as part of the research for it. So it was just slightly exaggerated, but uh, a lot of truth in there. Then I did one about the BBC's unvaccinated documentary. Again, total propaganda. I call that the propaganda of presumption which is, uh, in this case, presuming that vaccines are safe without having to investigate it. Next one was Living is Easy with Eyes Closed. That was um, when I was on the Knickknack podcast in 2021, I think, and I put two appearances I made there together. That was Knickknack's title. And, of course, there's a John Lennon connection there because that's a lyric from Strawberry Fields Forever. Then there was The Corporation, very, very good documentary from Canada. I did that with Luke Thompson. Then a two-parter on the Titanic. And then finally a podcast about David Blaine's Above the Below. People in England will remember that. 2003, he was in a Perspex box not eating for 44 days. But I always found that interesting. There's a chance that there was some illusory stuff going on, but I just took it as, same with the Titanic, I took it as the official story, if you like, is fascinating enough. And um, there was a lot in that with David Blaine to do with what he learned inside that box, where you take things away. You take away all the distractions, not that food is a distraction, but all the other distractions like mobile phones and busy lives and work and all that kind of thing. And you're just left with yourself. And what can you learn about yourself? And I think he learned a great deal. So that's 36 episodes over just over two years. And um, like I say, if you're new to the show, there's plenty to get your teeth into there. Next, um, I wanted to talk about life coaching because as well as being an English teacher, I'm a life coach. I want to just uh, give one example. There was a gentleman called Daryl. I'm not going to give his surname or where he's from because I, I haven't told him that he's going to be mentioned on this. But he actually reached out to me last year, having heard some of Life and Life Only. And we did, uh, I think it was 10 coaching sessions of an hour each. And we went through a fantastic journey together. I think we both agreed that because we, after the last session, we waited about a month and then we had a follow-up. And uh, he got a lot out of it. But as I told him at the end, I got a lot out of it as well. You know, it's a pleasure for me. English teaching is fine, but after 20 years, it's a little bit repetitive. And um, obviously, depending on the level of the student, sometimes the conversations are not always the deepest. And I like deep conversations. So if you are interested in life coaching, my uh, 
fiverr.com page will be in the show notes the sessions are very affordable i mean i've seen some coaches charging up to $200 per hour that what i charge is nothing like that it's a fraction of that so if you would be interested life and life only pod at gmail.com i could pretty much guarantee that if you come in with the right attitude and uh, i think curiosity is a big part of it as well you will get a lot out of that to make it clear i'm not a licensed therapist life coaching i've done a show about it as i mentioned when i was going through the shows a minute ago for example if you have high level anxiety or major depression you know life coaching would not be the thing for you although i would probably slight caveat to that i would say it might be a good pre-therapy step let's say to work through to talk through a few of the things before you get the deeper therapy you need a good life coach should stimulate a conversation where you're where the client will often find the answers themselves that may be true of therapy as well but if you think of for example a therapist giving out medication and um i've always been on the fence about medication but um let's say that i mean obviously they're giving out medication that's going to have a real effect on your body and mind whereas talking conversation going through exercises the effect is real but it's to do with the life coach and his skill in stimulating conversation where like i say the client finds the answer and that happened quite a bit with daryl i mean i don't think he was he wasn't searching for one particular answer but because he'd heard the show and i think he'd listened to my john lennon show as well he already knew something about me and my style and some of the stuff i talked about so from there it was i don't want to say effortless because that makes out that we weren't making an effort we weren't making an effort but it was easy in the sense of comfortable but we did go into a little bit of uncomfortable territory at the same time no two courses if you like sessions are the same you know it depends on the person and depends on what happened i do do a free consultation as well with no obligation i'm i'm not a hard salesman i'm fairly terrible at marketing and selling to be perfectly honest anyway that's there if you are interested so let us get to the first story so this is called traveling light now there are actually two slightly different versions of this story and they're both on my blog, which is on my website, Anthony Rotuno, Anthony without an H, Rotuno, R-O-T-U-N-N-O dot com. That's in the show notes as well. So I did an original one and then I did one for um, my students, my English language students. So I added a lot of idioms and expressions. So for native speakers listening, if you wouldn't mind indulging me for a second, I know from looking at the analytics that I do have something of an international audience Although they could all be, of course, expats living in those countries, we don't know. But I've actually had correspondence from people who uh, clearly are not native speakers. So uh, what I'm just going to quickly do, I'm just going to go through the phrases, not the meanings of the phrase, just the phrases themselves and expressions. So for non-native speakers, if you just listen to these phrases and then you'll hear them again in the story and uh, hopefully the context will help you to guess what they mean. So just very quickly, the phrases... Um, Spread my wings, broaden my horizons, home away from home, tourist trap, off the beaten track, just the ticket, putting my best foot forward, gritted my teeth, to cut a long story short, head in hands, bygone era, thinking on my feet, enjoyed to the full, and weigh us down. Travel light, to travel with very little luggage, that's British English, or baggage, American English. 
What I will talk about later is the idea of travelling light as a metaphor. And a general piece of advice for learning new vocabulary is to guess meanings from the context of a text rather than immediately running to a dictionary for a translation. Another thing to know is that in general, idioms and expressions often do not follow logical grammar rules. And so, as is the case with phrasal verbs, it's sometimes difficult to ascertain the meaning from the individual words. So, let's go. When I was in my mid-twenties, I decided it was finally time to belatedly spread my wings and try to broaden my horizons. So I saved up some money and went backpacking around the world for a year. The core differences between backpacking and holiday making are basically that you use a backpack instead of suitcases, you live on a modest budget which enables you to travel for sometimes far longer than the requisite two weeks, you try to be spontaneous and integrate with a local culture rather than experiencing a comfortable home away from home, you try to avoid tourist traps and instead seek out places that are off the beaten track and you travel light with a bare minimum of stuff to weigh you down. I certainly satisfied some of these criteria, but in my preparation I failed miserably on the final point mentioned. I'd read a Before You Go book, which was very informative in a lot of areas, but seemed to have been written with the presumption that every backpacker was travelling to very remote areas. The upshot was that I arrived in my first stop in Southeast Asia with a backpack so crammed full of apparently vital objects, note sarcasm, that my fragile back could scarcely support it. It had a handle on the side, so I ended up, with quite delicious irony, carrying it in the manner of a suitcase. I had to chuckle at that one at the time. When I arrived in Thailand, my first destination, and discovered that I could easily buy most of what I needed there, I managed to discard a few items out of my pack. I mean, did I really need eight pairs of socks in a country where the temperature is virtually guaranteed to be 30 degrees every day? And, believe it or not, the shops actually sell socks. Deep down, the Englishman brought up on a history of the celebration of colonialism and the glorious British Empire, brackets, they didn't teach us the bad bits in history class, can never quite believe that those in the third world, or the developing world, can supply him with what he needs in as efficient a manner as back home in the mother country. It's not genuine racism, just a conditioned sense of superiority that's hard to shake off. It's true that it's harder to shop in a country you don't know, but you can find some real bargains in the old-fashioned markets and I ended up buying two t-shirts that cost the equivalent of £1 each and lasted me over 10 years. I decided that an overland circular tour starting and finishing in Bangkok and taking in various towns and cities in Cambodia, Vietnam and Laos along the way would be just the ticket, since I would avoid the airport process, which always increases my stress levels. So, putting my best foot forward, I embarked on what became a wonderful trip whose moments of discomfort were anticipated and in fact almost encouraged, and did indeed increase my tolerance and resourcefulness as I'd hoped they would. The many highlights of the trip included an eight-hour journey in Cambodia on the back of a pickup truck without benches. Next to me was a large tyre, presumably being transported from one place to another, and as we hit a large crater in the uneven dirt road at speed, the tyre was jolted directly into my ribs. With something between a smile and a grimace, I continued the journey without complaint. Later I pulled out my guitar and an American friend and I serenaded the locals in the truck with a smorgasbord of 90s rock hits, including our specialty, Aeroplane by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. In Vietnam I gritted my teeth through a 14-hour overnight bus trip. I'll talk about that later. The insufficient space between seats, meaning that I was forced to sit bolt upright on the hard seats with little chance of substantial sleep, on sometimes treacherous mountain roads. 
I'd like to mention at this point that these kind of conditions were not always the norm, and this story is not presented in a spirit detrimental to the locals. This was their land, and I accepted my humble status of temporary visitor with appropriate respect. Having said all that, the main event of this tale involves some confusion on a trip along the Mekong Delta in southwest Vietnam. The tour involved a combination of bus and boat travel, and to cut a long story short, some of the bags somehow got loaded onto the wrong boat belonging to a completely different company. We didn't find out until the boats were long gone, the chances of their recovery being almost nil and involving a potential wait of many hours or even days. My large backpack and smaller day pack were gone, and all I was left with was my small bum bag, which mercifully contained my money, passport, traveller's checks, and copies of important documentation. My immediate reaction was desolation at the loss of all my travel possessions, which included clothes, books, fake CDs, a music player, all manner of trinkets, and also my as-yet-unused water purification tablets. I fell head in hands, thinking about the loss of these items and the subsequent stress, hassle and inconvenience that would surely be involved in replacing them. I'd been lucky to have met a very nice group of backpackers with whom I'd had a lot of fun and some great conversations, including one about how comical our huge and densely loaded backpacks looked as we were supposed to be embarking on glorious trips of freedom without the need for possessions. From the group came the helpful remark, Well, you did want to travel light, Anthony. And suddenly it hit me. I was indeed now travelling light, lighter than I ever could have imagined or would have dared. I was free. I had nothing to carry and nothing to defend. My new friends immediately offered to lend me clothes and let me borrow their music equipment and some CDs. Yes, this was the bygone era where physical products were king. And all manner of consolation and friendly offers came in my direction. What's more, I was finally living in the moment, thinking on my feet and reacting spontaneously instead of making provisions for every eventuality. From memory, I think I rebought some of the items, but I did manage to maintain the philosophy of travelling light from there on in. The moral of this story? Sometimes our goals are achieved in spite of ourselves and our actions. The moment is there to be enjoyed to the full, and while planning for the future is a good thing, it can often blind us from present opportunities and, sometimes literally, in the case of overstuffed backpacks, weigh us down. And that's it, short and sweet. So yeah, a couple of um, metaphors there, the idea of problems and stress weighing us down, as well as possessions. One of the things I've been preaching for years is to do with basic minimalism in terms of living, and also decluttering. About, uh, must be coming up for 20 years ago now, I did... um, what they call in England a car boot sale. I think it's called a garage sale in America. In England, you literally, you drive your car to a field, you pay a little entrance fee, and then you open the boot, the trunk of your car, and you sell from there. Basically, people are wandering around looking for bargains, and I've, I've gone there as a buyer as well many times. And uh, I never really look back from there. I've never really accumulated a lot. You know, I've got uh, a little bit of furniture, not much books, a fairly killer DVD collection. I don't really buy them anymore, but I've got all my favourite films on DVD with lots of director commentaries and documentaries and extras and all that kind of thing. But apart from that, I've hardly got anything. I've got musical instruments and clothes, that's pretty much it. And I I want to develop this metaphor of travelling light because you can do that in your mind as well because thoughts weigh you down. And one of the things that's come out in a lot of my life coaching 
sessions with clients is the idea of narratives. Now, this was something I heard on a podcast many years ago, the idea that we are constantly creating narratives in our mind about our own lives and other people's lives and what they think of us. And when you realise that's the case, it's a real eye-opener. There's a certain lightness you can have in your mind and it doesn't mean that you get less done or that you care less about things. It's just being a bit more choosy about what you put your mental energy on. And I think the story I've just read, I think it has a wonderful irony and that story is about 97% true. I added literally about three details bit of artistic license but it's basically a true story and uh, that moment where someone said um, with a twinkle in their eye well you did want to travel light I mean I think they I don't know if they were actually trying to teach me a lesson or making an ironic comment of their own but uh, I was thinking if my apartment burned down or (laughs) something like that bit of a morbid thought but obviously I'm presuming that there are no people in there when it burns down everyone gets out safely and uh, are not traumatized let's say my house my apartment burns down when I'm on holiday or not there for whatever reason. If I was insured and I knew that I would have a chance to recover some of the items later, you know, rebuy things, I was thinking I would actually be happy because there's a feeling of freedom. When I say I'd be happy, I don't want you to think I'm some weirdo who thinks it's great that his apartment's burned down, but part of me would be happy. I wouldn't be happy at the fact (laughs) of losing the apartment, but a bit like losing the backpack. Having got over the shock and had the what would seem the natural reaction of going, oh, no, I've lost everything, you suddenly realise you barely needed any of that stuff. Again, I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about stuff, things. And there are movements out there. I remember listening to a podcast years ago. And it was people who only allowed themselves, I think it was 50 possessions, but they were talking about, you know, one spoon as one. It was 50 items, including spoons and plates and knives and forks. And again, you might think that's strange, but, you know, you might think it's strange to completely cut sugar out of your diet or cut alcohol out of your diet. But some of the results of people making these changes are quite incredible. I'm just giving you food for thought. I never preach about these things. It's entirely up to you how you live your life. But um, I think there's a a nice metaphor in that story. I wanted to carry on um, just talking about uh, Southeast Asia, in fact. So I lived briefly in Laos, first of all, and then I lived in Thailand for about five years. And um, when I think about that time, it was just such an incredible time. I learned so much. I don't know if it was because I was living there or it just coincided with, uh, I think I turned 30 when I first moved there. And it was a time when I was starting to be a bit more reflective. I was starting to cut the booze and other stuff out of my life. Though they did make a comeback when I turned 40, but that's another story. Trying to clear my head a bit. Around that time, I was actually teaching guitar to an old gentleman who turned out to be a real guru for me. We kind of sparked each other off, but he was 30 or even 40 years older than me. So he had a a lot of experience. So that it was just a, a wonderfully transformative time. And I had some very strange deja vu moments. I used to go on these little walks on Sundays. I've always worked pretty hard, and but I've always tried not to work on Sunday. I very often work on Saturday, but Sunday is a bit of a sacred day where I usually spend the morning in bed reading or writing, you know, writing thoughts down in a pad. The more profound of those, then going onto the computer to contribute to a book or whatever I'm doing. And uh, in Thailand, I used to go 
they have these these roads they call soys, basically a side road or an alley, a short road off the main road. And where I lived, there were a lot of these, and I used to just go off on little walks and almost try and get lost, knowing that I'd find my way back eventually. But I used to find these wonderfully relaxing and freeing, these Sunday afternoon walks. And uh, every now and again, I'd go around a corner and I would just have this incredibly strong sense of deja vu. And it, and you think, well, okay, if it happens once, it happens twice. But I'm telling you, over probably a couple of years of doing these walks, it probably happened 20 or 25 times. And I couldn't explain it, but it just all seemed so familiar to me. And um, on that note, for those who think that these kind of things don't exist, my father wrote his memoirs a few years ago. And he uh, top and tailed his story by talking about a house he'd had dreams about from uh, when he was a boy in Italy. And they ended with 2013 when him and my mum moved into a new house. And the house was almost exactly the same as the one he dreamed about. And my dad's not a person for making up stories and reading too much into things. He's quite a pragmatic person. So, I mean, that's worth thinking about. It's pretty strange. The other thing I wanted to say that I really learned in Thailand is that people are basically the same. It's just the details that are different, you know, cultural differences. So if you go to different countries, people eat different stuff. People have slightly different values. But everyone eats and sleeps and has relationships and goes to work and has all the struggles of normal everyday life, even if their culture's a bit different, their weather's a bit different. So that's what I learned. And it's very, very simple, but it's, it's a profound thing. Thailand was developing quickly. I haven't been back since 2013, and I'm not sure if I want to go back, to be honest, because it's like a lot of these places, it's gradually being spoiled by Western tourism. And I'm not against tourism per se, but I've seen the ugly side of tourism as well as the nice parts of it. And I like to just keep the memory of Thailand as it was. You know, it was already being fairly developed then, but it was, like I said, it was, it was like an old-fashioned version of the West when I was there. And there was, there was a, a certain simplicity to it. I don't mean that in a patronising way, I mean that in a good way. The other thing I wanted to say was that relating to Vietnam... My sister Marina, who's been mentioned a few times on the John Lennon podcast, because she was the one who got me into John Lennon and the Beatles. Not that she pushed them on me, but she happened to buy me a John Lennon biography for a birthday. And she happened to um, buy a Beatles record and we all played it as a family. If you haven't heard that story, Glass Onion on John Lennon, episode one. Marina just came back from Vietnam and she was talking about she went to the uh, War Remnants Museum, which... Uh, from memory, it was basically the Vietnamese version of the war, but with lots of photos and, you know, the effects of Agent Orange and that kind of thing. And my sister said something to me. She said, oh, it was a real eye-opener because I thought the Americans had just gone there to help. And uh, that phrase kind of made me, made me chuckle a little bit, the idea of, oh, oh we just, we've just come to help. If you listen to my talk with Doug Valentine, uh, one of the previous episodes I was talking about before, and... If you really study anything about the Vietnam War in any depth, you find that they didn't come there with good intentions. If anyone's watched the Ken Burns 10-parter on Vietnam that came out in 2017, I've savaged that a couple of times on this podcast. He started with something about the war was started by good men with good intentions. It's, mm, yes, all right. I can't remember if I said this to Marina, but I was definitely thinking it. There may be 100 other important historical events that you've never heard the story of 
you know, I'm just using Marina as an example, but this applies to anyone who gets most of their news from mainstream sources. You know, I mean, I, I went through the quote unquote awakening of this bombardment of alternative information, a lot of which was provable, some was speculative, some was conspiracy theories, let's say. You know, it makes me think if everyone went through that journey, what a world we would live in, you know, what a different world we would live in. The other thing from uh, Vietnam, something that I briefly mentioned in this Travelling Light story, this coach journey. So I took an overnight coach journey. I can't remember exactly where it was. I think I was either going to or from a town called uh, Hue, H-U-E, in Vietnam. In those days, I used to have all kinds of contact lens problems because I used to go out drinking and I'd forget to take my contact lenses out and that would sting my eyes and I wouldn't clean them. And I was just a, I was just a massive neurosis in my 20s got a bit better now by the way let me say it's lovely to be able to talk about it here believe me it's very cathartic doing these kind of episodes so I think I'd thrown away my contact lenses or something and I was traveling like I said I was on this backpacking trip and I only had these prescription sunglasses uh, because the um, the overnight trip actually started at nine or ten in the evening it was already dark and all I had were these sunglasses basically so I couldn't really see what was going on and uh the things I remember about it was that, as I said in the story, I was sat bolt upright because there was no space between the seats because the locals are smaller in general than people in the West. So it was a very, very uncomfortable seat. And I was thinking, oh my God, I've got this, this whole night trip. It was about 12 hours. And I used to have terrible trouble sleeping in those days. So anyway, this trip started and I was probably listening to some CDs and trying to keep myself occupied. And uh, I remember I was sat quite near the front of the coach and there was a big digital clock there. So we set off whatever time it was, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock. And every now and again, I'd watch the clock. And of course, if you watch the clock, it tends to go slower. <laughs> but what was weird was that when I finally got to sleep and I was sleeping very badly, I was having dreams where I was looking at the clock and the clock would say something like 6.30 a.m., meaning we were fairly close to the end of this trip. And then I'd awake out the dream and the clock would say 11 p.m. or something. So I was being uh, tortured by these dreams where this trip was nearly over. Anyway, in the grand scheme of things, what's a 12-hour coach trip? There's far bigger problems in the world. I was also under the influence of Valium or some a local version of Valium. The guy told me it was Valium, but it seemed to be something a bit stronger. And I was having, I was wondering at times whether I was dreaming or having hallucinations. But the point I was getting to, which relates to the travelling light idea, at some point I just gave in and I said, all right, maybe I'll sleep, maybe I won't. Maybe this will be a comfortable trip, maybe it won't. So you might say I travelled light, inverted commas, in my mind. Julian Charles, who I mentioned earlier of The Mind Renewed, he did a podcast years ago called Holding Things Lightly. And it's the same idea of just, yeah, this lightness and not overanalyzing and not over-stressing, not using up energy, worrying about stuff you can't control. I will mention that a bit later as well. But now I'm going to change tack a little bit here. I'd like to read a review of this podcast that came out quite a while ago, sometime last year, but I didn't see it for ages because it was from the Canadian version of Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes or possibly still known as iTunes. This was very flattering, I must say, because the person had actually set up an account on Apple called Apple Sucks Anthony Rocks. And I subsequently found a review from this person of Glass Onion on John Lennon. So I'd like to say to this person who left the review, 
I don't know if it's a man or a woman. Please get in touch, either lifeandlifeonlypod at gmail.com or glassonionpod at yahoo.com. That applies to anyone, by the way, who'd like to leave any feedback or any comments about either of those podcasts. I have a third podcast, by the way, Film Gold, which gets a bit neglected. But uh, we just did a two-parter about Michael Caine because he just turned 90. Anyway, this review, it's uh, pretty long, but I'm going to read it. I'm cognizant of the fact that this might sound a bit like bragging, but I'm honestly reading this because I wanted to give this person a shout-out. And it's a really good piece of writing anyway. And uh, like I say, it's, it's, very, uh, it's very flattering and humbling to get these kind of reviews and also the messages I get from people around the world. It's truly a wonderful thing. So the title of the review is Like If Socrates Joined a Rock Band and Took Up Podcasting. That's Socrates, the philosopher, presumably not the brilliant footballer from the 1982 World Cup. A rocket blast of a podcast exploring ideas, their ins and outs, and subtle surprising turns. Anthony Rotuno is a one-person podcast dynamo whose arrival on the scene seems to have been due to some sort of profound epiphany or satori, for he woke up one day from a dreary, caffeinated, TV-headed existence, quit his suffocating office job, smashed his TV to bits, joined a rock band and took to the road, both literally and spiritually, a wandering philosopher king in rags. His podcasts leave me inspired, my mind abuzz for the rest of the day. Anthony has a deep gaze, yet retains a light touch. Is that word light? He never preaches but invites you along. The episodes gleam with wisdom, but also with humour, humility and a loving, kind heart that drives it all. For a mental samurai podcast demon, he seems like a really good bloke you could enjoy a beer with. Life and Life Only is a generous smorgasbord of variety. Interesting he's using smorgasbord, which I used in that travel story. Anthony must have some Ed Sullivan DNA in him. There's rich, in-depth interviews, both penetrating and fun, full of the sorts of questions you'd always wished an interviewer would ask. Live readings, he's a spellbinder with a perfect voice, the occasional wonderful guitar song he'll play and sing for us live, without net, and above all, there's his thought-provoking, off-the-cuff, solo musings, which for me are the dazzling star of the show. So hopefully you're enjoying this episode. Mr. or Mrs. Apple Sucks, Anthony Rocks. Sometimes while listening, I feel as shattered almost as 2001's Frank Bowman zooming through the starscape. Happily, the podosphere is graced with two other Rotuno productions, Glass Onion on John Lennon, an underrated gem that bests the rest of all the top-rated Beatles themes podcast, a true toppermost of the poppermost, and its film Gold podcast for a nifty take on films through the miracle of Rotuno vision. These works are a true gift. So thank you so much for that. The other reason I'm reading that is that really this is the best example of what I was intending to happen with this podcast, what I wanted people to get from it. And hopefully he's not the only person that feels like that. You know, I'm certainly not Socrates, but I'm a big follower of Bill Hicks, the late Bill Hicks, for example. And one of Bill Hicks' friends said, Bill Hicks wanted to be Jesus. He wanted to heal the world. And I suppose... I don't want to be Jesus, but I do want to do something. I want to make a, a useful contribution to this world. You know, I don't want to just, you know, nothing wrong with an office job per se, but that's not for me. Of course, a lot of people go to offices and do very creative jobs. I'm just almost using the office job as a, almost like a catch-all, you know, for, uh, I'd say it's not to do with an office. It's more to do with a, a job that doesn't inspire you. So anyway, I mean, that, that just warms my heart to read stuff like that and, uh, I haven't got a big head. I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm not good at. You know, living in England, there's this obsession with self-deprecation and you can't ever say you're good at things. But I think I am pretty decent at what I do and it's mostly because I've been doing it for a while and I've also been learning about the world for 
10, 15, 20 years. So you're going to build up insights. And um, I've always been a person that likes conversation and talking and the calm voice that you're hearing. I didn't really intend it to come out like that. I remember the very first episode of Glass Onion I did. I listened back and I thought, oh, well, I mean, that sounds uh, very calm, quite a soothing voice. Anyway, hope my voice is soothing you. <laughs> Let's go to the next thing. We're going to deal a bit now with the outer truth. I had a, a group on meetup.com called Meaningful Conversations. And it was a little bit of a fait accompli on my part, because if someone joins a group called Meaningful Conversations or they go to one of the meetings, they're almost obliged, if you like, although there were no obligations really, to try to be meaningful in their conversation. That group doesn't exist anymore. But what we did instead, there's now nine of us and we just um, have our own meetups organised through emails and so forth. Anyway, a few months ago, while I was still the leader of the group and preparing topics for each meetup, I asked the other guys, have you got any ideas for topics? And someone said, can we do conspiracy theories? And um, if you're a regular listener to this show, you will know that I think, as I said earlier, the conspiracy theory phrase has been weaponized, and it's a it's a remarkable way to shut down debate. So I um, kind of knew what was going to happen, and I uh, internally rolled my eyes a bit. But you know, I didn't want to object something that had come from one of the other guys in the group. And I said, "All right, we'll do conspiracy theories." I made it clear in the blurb, which I did for each meetup, that this wasn't just just going to be laughing at. Th- 9-11 truthers and the moon landings. You know, it's the people that laugh at it. They always pick the most ridiculous ones, like Elvis being alive or the Earth being flat. I made it clear that that wasn't going to be the point of this. We're going to take them seriously and look at alternative information. Anyway, a lot of the meetup was fairly predictable. And there was a guy in the group who I actually have a lot of affection for. And I've learned a lot from him in the couple of years that I've known him. But he was the one who kind of rolled his eyes when we start talking about 9-11 and so forth. And one of the common arguments you'll hear is that so many people would have had to have kept quiet about it in relation to, let's say, 9-11 or the moon landings. The moon landings I've never really investigated, to be honest. I have a particular focus. I focused on 9-11 for a long time, 7-7 in England as well, because those two events were very much linked in terms of the intelligence networks. And I tried to explain to him what compartmentalization was and uh, how, in fact, you wouldn't need hundreds and hundreds of people. I also explained to him that there have been lots of suspicious deaths around uh, the JFK 9-11 events, and probably others as well. But again, JFK was a focus as well, because there was so much there, and that was something that you could reasonably talk to people about without them dismissing it out of hand. But this guy said something very interesting. Towards the end of the talk, he said, well, actually, I don't want to know. And That was quite a revelation, and I didn't want to make a big deal of it at the time. But think about this. If you are listening to this and you're a person who thinks conspiracy theories are dangerous and silly, how much of it is that you actually don't want to know? Because I was pointing out to him that I still have on my computer 10 to 15 hours of documentaries about 9-11 with a lot of sourced information. A lot of them have come from James Corbett, who I mentioned earlier, having been on the show and been on the Glass Onion show as well. And it documented information, it has video footage from the time. And uh, I said to this guy in the group, do you want to come around my flat over a few nights and we can watch 10 hours of 9-11 documentaries? And then he rolled his eyes and said, oh, I don't want to do that. And that's when this thing about, oh, actually, I don't want to know. Because I said to him, 
in a five-hour documentary about 9-11, what do you think is in that? How do you think they fill up five hours with just total rubbish, with no evidence of any kind? It, it seems almost, you know, if you think about that rationally, how do you do that? Maybe there are five-hour documentaries out there that are absolute just conspiracy rubbish. Maybe there are, maybe there aren't. But um, that was interesting. And the other thing I was pointing out, some stuff I'd gleaned from listening to podcasts, because I get a lot of my news from podcasts. You know, I scan the mainstream news for the headlines to see what factual events have happened around the world. But I get so much from independent researchers, James Corbett being one of the leading lights, but many other people. And I was pointing out, did any anyone in the group know that drugs had been... Uh, it was either decriminalised or legalised in Portugal. All drugs. And this guy, another guy in the group, who was pretty open-minded to me, said, oh, God, I didn't know that. And I said, well, why don't you know that? Not in an accusatory way, but why have you never been told that through the news sources that you follow? Ask yourself, why don't you know that? And then I reeled off a couple of other very well-known facts, both historical... I was talking about stuff like Operation Paperclip. Ever heard of that? The fact that loads and loads and loads of Nazis were allowed into America, mostly because they had uh, information on the Russians, but also Werner von Braun, big part of America going to the moon, a glorious event, was a Nazi. Have you ever heard of Operation Mockingbird? Absolutely provable that CIA agents were infiltrated into the media to spread stories. And that links with the conspiracy theory thing again. There's a memo from the CIA encouraging operatives to start using that phrase in a derogatory way to shut down debate i hope some of the guys got a lot out of it it was a bit painful for me most of it but uh you know i did my duty as a meetup host and went through all the old arguments about the phrase itself anyway i mean that's the outer truth portion of this podcast i mean if you haven't watched some of these 9-11 documentaries for example obviously you know it's a good idea to pick and choose if you study this kind of thing your life or at least your opinion will change, and it's up to you whether you want that to happen. I wouldn't push that on you, you know. Not everyone wants to know the truth of the world, and in fact, on my John Lennon podcast, I was recently talking about how I went down the rabbit hole for six months, massively, in about 2013 or 14, and I got really depressed at the end of it, so I'm not sure I would recommend continuing to go down the rabbit hole, because it's basically bottomless. Another thing I wanted to talk about is that what came out from that meeting is that in a very very general sense it was a meeting of truthers versus normies because there's another lady in the group who does seem to understand propaganda and she has heard of some of the stuff I was talking about and researched it and found it to be true so there's a bit of a split off there but in the group I've always prided myself on the fact that people are free to say what they want I try and say to people please don't get offended you know let's not just create these predictable divisions let's just let open discussion happen i define a truther i'm a truther not in the sense of 9-11 truth but in the general sense that i have seen through the mainstream propaganda and i'm seeking the truth through various channels a normie in my definition is someone who let's say in england trusts the bbc and thinks that the bbc is basically telling you most or all of what you need to know so if we take the invasion of ukraine again not defending it if you listen to BBC radio, which I sometimes do in the car, you would form the impression that Vladimir Putin is just a Hitler-esque lunatic who just decided it was a smart move to invade Ukraine with absolutely no provocation, which is just incredible. It's incredible that 
a trusted news source like the BBC can simplify things down and they get all the right experts in there, of course. One documentary you might want to check out is Ukraine on Fire. That's um, got some interesting historical stuff. Again, a lot of it provable. But uh, I decided I wasn't going to talk about Ukraine uh, again. But just using it as an example of how um, your trusted news sources are just simplifying things. And of course, the UK, the US, the NATO allies, they're giving you the NATO version of the world. Just as, you know, Russia is giving you the Russian view of the world. If you go back to the... uh, propaganda episodes i've done previously on the show i think you'll get some insights there about how it works so moving on the next thing a few months ago on the same day i had uh, english classes a life coaching session i did a podcast recording and then i had the meetup group in the evening and i was thinking on that day i've always had a problem with identity you know when i was in my 20s probably into my 30s as well I had no idea who I was. And that was probably one of the things that bonded me to John Lennon because he seemed to have that as well. And obviously, millions of people around the world, particularly young people, let's say, struggle with identity. But it was interesting that on that day, I had those four things. So, as I said, English teaching, life coaching, podcast recording, and a meetup group. And I realized that's my identity. And my identity is conversations and sharing of ideas. And one thing that I find is really lovely is how often something that comes up in an English class I can use in a life coaching session or vice versa or something from the meetup group, maybe a link to something interesting and an article or a video of something of interest or a podcast I could then use in my teaching. And it was a lovely feeling to feel that I had some kind of identity. And on the subject of conversations, I've just recorded over, I think it was three Skype talks an episode which will probably be three episodes, a three-parter for Glass Onion, with a gentleman called David Wills, who's known as Ghosty. He's a radio DJ. And he's been on um, also the film show as well, Film Gold. We did a two-parter on Marlon Brando. He's been on Glass Onion many times. And um, he and I have these really, I'd say almost magical conversations, but it's not because we're magical. It's not tooting our horns. It's the chemistry we have. And in fact, we may be meeting this year. He told me that he's coming to England. So I really hope to meet Ghosty in the flesh. But right from the off, when the first time we ever connected and had a proper conversation, we actually, uh, funnily enough, I've forgotten about this. To use another English expression, we got off on the wrong foot because we actually ended up having some stupid argument on Facebook about something. (laughs) I think we'd friended each other on Facebook because he told me he'd been listening to the John Lennon podcast. So we started with an argument, but then uh, when we actually talked and I had him on the show to do a, a mammoth talk we did about John Lennon and Elvis Presley, we just found that this lovely chemistry developed and, uh, you know, conversation is a lovely thing and it I consider it an art form. And when you've been doing it for a long time, in all the various contexts that I do it, you get a flow, but it's really about chemistry and he and I we discovered this phrase, I think I said it halfway through the latest conversation of casual chemistry. (laughs) And it's just this easy flowing thing. And we always have lots of laughs and we don't plan them. You know, I've never written down jokes, not even once for a podcast. We kind of know that some gold will come out of it, plus some profound conversation, because we both like going into areas beyond the immediate thing we're talking about. In this case, John Lennon in 1962. So, um, Yeah, chemistry is a wonderful thing. Group dynamics are an interesting thing that I've talked about before in my English teaching. I used to teach groups of 
about eight to ten people and occasionally there'd be people in the groups who knew each other before the course started but often you get eight ten strangers they come in for the first class sometimes everyone would sit down and there'd just be this lovely feeling around the group even though they hadn't even met each other and then other groups I'd have where they'd be together for three months and they'd never learn each other's names because there was this weird distance and I couldn't get past that even though I'd do a lot of uh, getting to know you exercises between them I'd probably say if you find a person who you have great conversations with, make the most of that because it's a wonderful thing. Right, changing tack again, I would like to talk about cats. Now, I think cats have always been loved, but in the internet era, (laughs) there is that funny thing, isn't there? Someone, a wonderfully cynical uh, quote from someone saying, we now have in our pocket, meaning the smartphone, all the information that you would ever need. You know, we've got the Library of Alexandria... (laughs) before it was burned down in our pockets and we share cat videos i get the sentiment that we do tend to prefer easier more trivial things to talk about than these heavy topics or to share you know in terms of cat videos but three or four years ago my parents came by this cat it wasn't a rescue as such it was a bit of a complicated story but um through my involvement this cat entered their lives and it it's such a lovely cat. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I'm probably biased, but now for the first time in 10, 15 years, I'm living close to my folks. They're in their 70s now, and they appreciate visits from me, and obviously I go and see the cat as well and do a bit of cat sitting when they're on holiday. But as part of my um, English classes, I found a couple of TED Talks. They're actually TED-Ed. They're shorter talks. They're not given by a person. They're narrated by someone I'll put them in the show notes. There were two. One was called The History of the World According to Cats. The other one, I think it's called Why Do Cats Act So Weird? And it was trying to explain all the wonderfully quirky behaviours that cats have. And essentially, it confirmed some of the stuff I'd already thought, which is that to a cat, a genteel garden in a suburban area, they don't differentiate between that and the jungles of Vietnam or, or the jungles of anywhere. That's why they're always on guard and they're still hunters and they've been slightly domesticated. They're not as wild as they used to be, but they haven't really changed that much. They love climbing on windows because they like a high vantage point. So often I lift this cat up. My parents have got a two-tier garden. I take it to the top of the garden and give it a lovely vantage point over the whole garden and it absolutely loves it. And there are various other things about why do cats poke their heads into containers and it's basically because they're looking for their standard diet which is small animals mice and so forth and um, there are a couple of other interesting things the reasons are cats like to have four or five small meals a day rather than one big meal and that's again because their diet they're conditioned to have a diet of small things so uh, that's the way they like to do that but one of the things in the video is really interesting i don't think this is a confirmed bit of science but they were talking about how the um, the frequency that a cat purrs at can actually strengthen and rebuild their bone and muscle, can rebuild tissue. And uh, one of the things I do with this cat that um, now lives with my parents is that I uh, it's a very, very uh, non-aggressive cat. I put my ear to its belly and uh, listen to this wonderful, while it's asleep or while it's awake, this wonderful low rumbling, that low rumble of purring which is just such a soothing, lovely sound. It just makes me feel so relaxed. But they were saying that if you sit or lie with your cat and you're absorbing this purring, this frequency, 
it could actually rebuild your bone and muscle tissue, which is incredible. Again, I, I don't know if that's confirmed, but uh, it's certainly worth thinking about. The other thing about cats is that they teach you about self-care. You know, because obviously they look after themselves. Some would say they're very selfish. People say, oh, your cat doesn't really love you. I don't think about that. It's possible the cat doesn't love us or does love us. So I just enjoy the relationship anyway. You know, you're never going to know about a cat's true thoughts and feelings, the same as with humans, in fact. But, you know, cats have that self-contained thing. You know, they look after themselves, they keep themselves safe, and they keep themselves clean. And um, for my parents, this cat is wonderful. And uh, I was talking to my mother once, and we were saying, uh, it's a female cat, by the way, it's like having a little granddaughter in the house that both my mum and my dad want to look after. But it's a granddaughter who's quiet, doesn't make any noise, basically, doesn't need any cleaning. <laughs> Takes basically no looking after at all, just you know, feeding and so forth. Nothing against little granddaughters, I'm sure they're lovely, but um, they're more work than a cat. So it's uh, it's really just a perfect fit for a retired couple. And as is statistically often the case, women outlive men. So you can imagine for, let's say, a widowed lady or a widower, a man, just the perfect companion. Now, in my life coaching, I talk a lot about self-care and self-love. I've seen some videos and articles where they take it a bit far, like looking in the mirror and saying, I love you into the mirror. <laughs> I don't really go into that area, but I think observation of cats is a, is a calming exercise. Yeah, watching a cat stretching and relaxing. You know, I often think that cats are basically meditating because they turn off, obviously their brain is a lot smaller. Their mind is not going to be as active as a human mind. So their mind is switched off. And also they're basically doing yoga, aren't they? Because they're doing these enormous stretches. These wonderful, must be very therapeutic for the cat, but it's therapeutic to watch it. Cats are obviously very entertaining as well. And we understand them better now, but we still don't quite understand them. So there's a nice mysterious element to it as well. I think you can just learn a great deal from the way they live their lives. So, um, you know, if you have a cat, do some observation and... Uh, you might rebuild your bone and muscle tissue in the process. And uh, watch the TED Talks as well. They're, they're both five minutes. Okay. Now, the next segue is the second story I would like to read. And this is called Pure Heaven. Now, of all the things I've written, this is probably the only one I've ever written that almost came out automatically. Not quite, but uh, I used to be a terrible insomniac. I may have talked about this before. And one of the things that used to happen was I didn't have too much trouble getting to sleep. I think almost for my entire adult life, I've got to sleep between 11 and 12. But I would wake up at, oh, usually about five, yeah, maybe even early. I'd, I'd get four to five hours sleep. And then I'd wake up, my mind would be absolutely racing. And I had a dilemma sometimes because I would feel just awful. And it partly was the mental thing of thinking, oh God, will I get back to sleep? But at the same time as I wasn't feeling so great, my mind would also be strangely fertile and alive and I would have great ideas for songs because I was a songwriter, active songwriter then. Great ideas for English lessons, great ideas for writing and great ideas about life, basically. And um, I'd always have the dilemma, should I stay up for an hour and try and get this down in paper or get my guitar out and try and see if this song idea can develop into a, a finished song and it did a couple of times actually wrote a song straight off or should I fight it and try and go back to sleep 
And I realised that, you know, I wasn't going to go back to sleep, if at all, at least within an hour anyway. So I'd spend about an hour and I, I got loads of good stuff out of that. And um, one morning I suddenly had this idea. It wasn't a totally original idea. That documentary I've recommended many times, Everything is a Remix. Get on that one, folks, if you haven't seen it. I'll put it in the show notes. Every idea comes from somewhere else. I don't believe in a completely original idea. And uh, if you've seen the film, it's a very old film with David Niven called A Matter of Life and Death. I think it's alternatively titled Stairway to Heaven, 25 years before Led Zeppelin's song of that name. I haven't seen the film for years and years. I really should go back to it. But the image was when you got to heaven, there were lots of people and you had to sign in. I think I remember that right. Either way, it's, it's quite an interesting idea. You go to heaven, you sign in, and suddenly you're in heaven. So I, I wrote this story for my blog. And then I think I went back to sleep, funnily enough. And then uh, later on that day, I went back and I read it. And it was almost as if I hadn't remembered writing it. But again, it's this meditative, trying not to plan it too much. Trying just to let the mind go and let the ideas come. So I'm going to read you the story that came out of that. It's a story in two parts, basically. And the first part about it is actually a description of my death, which, as far as I know, hasn't happened yet. I'm still here. I'm going to just say off the bat, I've had a fascination, one might say an obsession with death, from quite a young age. Let me make it clear. Things like Tem Rillington Place and, um, you know, the killing of JFK and the Moore's murders and serial killers and all that kind of thing, I'm not interested in the details of the killing. I have no interest in seeing pictures of dead bodies and stuff. But I remember from the film Gladiator, as uh, the Russell Crowe character is dying, again, I think I remember this rightly, he's sort of alternating between his final moments on Earth and then the supposed paradise where he's going to find his wife and child who've been killed earlier in the story. And I I was just thinking how fascinating it would be to be lying there and to know that in a moment you're going to pass on to the other side and all your worries will be gone. Now, of course, you will be leaving behind your loved ones. But I've never really been afraid of death. And it's interesting that of all the self-development books, which I differentiate from self-help books, but things like The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson and The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene, I think Civilized to Death by the aforementioned Chris Ryan. He's the person I mentioned at the top of this they all mentioned that fear of death was what was holding the human race back, a preoccupation with um, somehow trying to deny it. But if you see death as a glorious thing, and I'll talk in a a minute, I've got a caveat to that, but if you think of death as a glorious part of the life cycle, then it, it really can change the way you live your life. I remember years ago, in fact, it was on the backpacking trip. I was in Australia and I learned to scuba dive on the Great Barrier Reef. And the guy who was running the scuba diving was a bit of a kind of a philosopher himself. And we were having talks. I think we were having a beer after the course was over. And he said uh, at some point, you realise that as soon as you're born, you're in the process of dying. Your life is ending as soon as it begins. And again, it's not in a morbid way. I think our society has also an obsession with preservation of life. That's why Chris Ryan, again, has made the point, do we live longer or do we just spend longer dying? In the sense of, if life expectancy used to be 75 and now it's 82 or whatever, have we just gone from 74 good years followed by one year of suffering to 74 good years and eight years of suffering? There was a caveat 
It's interesting that I'm recording this the day after what's called in England Good Friday, which is sort of Easter Friday, you know, two days before Easter Sunday. And of course, that was the day that Jesus was supposedly crucified. And um, I've seen The Passion of the Christ once, the Mel Gibson film, but I felt in a way it was almost like a snuff film that he made the point about how awful crucifixion was and the scourging and everything, but seemed to take it way beyond the point where Jesus would have actually died from what was being inflicted on him. But I do remember, I think I even listened to the commentary, and they said that as Jesus was being crucified in the film, the music was very ethereal. And he said, because this is a glorious moment, and it's interesting that in the Christian faith that is considered a glorious moment, because if you actually think about crucifixion and... Call me a weirdo, but I watched this video called Crucifixion, A Medical Perspective. I don't think I'll put it in the show notes, but it's there on YouTube if you want to watch it. And they actually go through the process of what actually happens when you're crucified and the crown of thorns and all that. And I mean, it really is just incredible the way the Romans have perfected the art of making the person suffer as much as possible and delaying their death as much as possible. All of which leads me to starting to read this story. So um, I'll read the first brief section then i'll pause and then we'll get to the heaven part my final night on this earth was a thursday an innocuous day except for its proximity to friday and the blessed weekend on this thursday evening i went for drinks with a few work colleagues to celebrate in inverted commas the leaving for pastors new of one of the company's hot shots who evidently had his real friends to entertain at the weekend this was a small company a feeder which groomed creative and talented people before bowing to their inevitable departure to a place which materially gave them more of what they wished for. Our manager, Mr. Stever, was in the Sam Phillips of Sun Records mould, and a few Elvises had come and gone while he'd been in charge. I'll just quickly explain that. Sam Phillips ran a small record label called Sun Records, and Elvis Presley did his first recordings there before his contract was bought out by RCA, I think it was. And Sam Phillips accepted this graciously, that he had moulded Elvis and then Elvis was going to go on to bigger things. Mr. Steve was a man I respected, and in an alternative to this story, I could be writing about the time when my life finally took shape and I found my home. In fact, I did like this job because it was relaxed and allowed me to take home reasonable money without taxing my energy levels, and it also allowed me to simply exist while I allowed my fatalistic tendencies to dictate. I was not a happy person, and this was compounded by the fact that I had no material reason why not. In the eyes of society, I had had a normal upbringing with no trauma, and there's no doubt that I had loving parents. This only made the situation worse, though. There was a private despair, I felt, not easy to articulate to others, because it didn't fit the mould of what I generally was. In reality, I mainly was a happy person, if you weigh up time in percentages. I laughed a reasonable amount, and when I was in company, I had a pretty good time. Certain works of fiction and non-fiction have noted that everyone has a private world with feelings that are darker than those which they display in public. However, I refuse to believe that many could feel the absolute and total despair that I did at certain times. External factors played their part to some degree, among them weather and physical illness, but my problem was internal and elusive. I stopped believing, stopped trying and became one going through the motions, an actor playing the same role because he hasn't the heart to take on anything else. Now I'm going to do a quick pause to say that when I actually wrote this story, this was a good, I think it was 12 years ago I wrote it, and I feel like I was channeling my early days, so I'm in my 40s now, I was in my 30s when I wrote it, and I feel I was channeling a time that really stopped around my early 30s, 
where I had this kind of awakening. I was pretty depressed in my 20s or despairing of life, let's call it. That's not the way I feel now. I just wanted to make that clear. So carrying on. It was 10pm and I'd drunk a combination of beer and wine and was feeling warm. We were outside the pub, just leaving, when we noticed an argument starting over a woman. The two fighters had both been consuming beer at the English rate of consumption and now it all kicked off. At first it was fists, but then out of nowhere the one who actually had the girlfriend produced a blade. I hadn't seen this and in my slightly tipsy state I decided to intervene and instigate a peaceful outcome, fatally doing this with a smile on my face, which could, I suppose, have been taken for a certain disregard for the importance for the protagonists of this confrontation. At times like these I really did feel that love was what was needed and all that was required was to take the pressure down a few notches. Perhaps my attempted push did appear aggressive and the man with the knife plunged his weapon into the right side of my chest in one swift movement. I lay there and appeared to be smiling. How can I describe the feeling of my injury, of being stabbed? I suppose a stabbing pain is the best I can come up with. I know that it hardly hurt at all. I lay on my back feeling at peace while everyone around me acted hysterically. The ambulance was on its way but I only survived around seven minutes after the knife went in. At first I teetered between life and death. I was the victim of a stabbing which sounded gruesome but in fact I should be honest and say that it was something of a blessed relief. In those seven minutes I had many thoughts about my family and how this would upset them, about people I'd known, especially the very few who I felt really understood me and about life itself. Perhaps my smile was at the irony of recent events because in the past I'd done so much planning for the future, lived in the future in fact, which I felt was a slight improvement on living in the past and had imagined all kinds of scenarios. Then the irony disappeared and I realised that my quiet letting go of hope, of life, had inevitably led to an event. Something had to happen because life always pays you some kind of card, good or bad, and here was mine. As the blood drained from my face and then from my body, I left this mortal coil, musing that of all the people I'd known and places I'd been, it was these people, my work colleagues, nice people but hardly soulmates, who were in my company when it ended. I selfishly felt relaxed and relieved. Unbeknownst to me until much later, my family had been incredibly philosophical after the initial shock of that phone call, the one all parents dread. Perhaps it had been a good thing that I'd made my position in life clear to them. I wasn't getting married, wasn't having children, and at this moment was no longer playing a card. So just quickly, I mean, that is pretty negative stuff, let's be honest, in terms of my, not in terms of the event, but in terms of my worldview at that time. But let's get to the next part. That's the first part of this short story. Part two is heaven. It did exist, does exist. And it's something fairly like it's depicted in the film A Matter of Life and Death. That's the one I mentioned earlier. You go up in a lift, fairly modern looking, and if you are wounded when you died, you still have the marks, but without the pain, like Christ after his resurrection. But you are most certainly not going back to earth. You're here now, and here you stay. The first hour or so is a lot of red tape, a time of limbo, a time between the worlds where earth-influenced bureaucracy has not quite been eradicated. So you do earthly things like changing your clothes and having a shower, but because everyone who enters heaven has already fallen into a calm state, there's no drama attached to the waiting, changing and showering time. It just happens, without incident and without ego. From there you emerge and enter into something that resembles a kind of social centre, a place for people to meet and exist, 
with grounds for walking and enjoying the vast space. What you realise quickly is that the ego has genuinely disappeared in the people up here, however like humans they appear. You walk around and because you don't quite shake the earthly influence instantly, you're waiting to hear an argument or someone hustling someone else or some other type of action. Instead you find people communicating without their minds being a barrier. They live in an extraordinarily detached world, nothing bothering them at all. No pain, no anger, no bitterness. You can't feel pain because there are no nerves to feel it with. No worries, no fears, no hunger, no thirst. And in case you're wondering, no toilet. Not even any desires. This would sound awful to some people who claim that leaders have promised a utopia similar to this before, with disastrous consequences. But here there's no money, no lust for power. It's something approaching a utopia. Except it's not defined. It doesn't need to be. It takes some adjustment, but it doesn't take too long. And as everyone slowly realises that nobody else is going to start any trouble, and that if they did it themselves, their heart wouldn't be in it, that instinct just ceases. So we have all these souls existing, who look like people, but have none of the needs that grind down humans. So are they like animals, free to roam in the world? Not exactly, because it is a pure myth of animals roaming free in the world. Most animals don't discounting crocodiles, for example, who spend the majority of their time in a form of meditative state. I learned that in Australia, by the way. Animals in the wild are constantly aware of the need to feed themselves, to stake their territory and to ward off potential predators. Okay, they don't torture themselves like humans do with to-do lists and anxiety over what bad news has been fed to them by the mainstream media. Their brains are not overloaded with external artificial temptation, but they still feel anxiety and, of course, need. So our souls in heaven are perhaps living an existence more like that of a domesticated pet. Cats and dogs in the home do seem content if they are not and haven't previously been mistreated. If you take away the need for food, they're probably even happier. So I'm here, in pure heaven. It's not perfect, but I'm refreshed by having lost the instinct to judge, to compare. I'm existing, but it's pleasant, and you get to talk to a lot of people. Everyone remembers their earthly existence, and some like to use their names, but as time goes on, the memories fade and the names start to mean nothing. In fact, veterans told me very quickly when I arrived that it takes about five years, which is an estimate since time becomes of little importance, for memories of the earthly existence to completely fade. Similarly, hunger, which arguably could be renamed food anxiety, since so much of our food is chemical and processed, lasts as long as you feel anxious that you should be eating. People who still remember talk about their earthly lives and have fun trying to figure out what it all meant. Couples who were married sometimes meet, but there are no arguments because the reason to argue is gone. The reason was their lives, their situations, and all the very subtle external factors that influence humans every day without them having the slightest inkling of them. Most people in their earthly incarnations knew about advertising and were fully aware, for example, that McDonald's used posters that made their burgers look nice. However, did they, or does anyone ever stop to wonder that experts in human psychology may be being employed against us, people who know things about the average person that the person doesn't know themselves? That messages are put in advertising media that are impossible to stop if you're not looking for them. Now, here in heaven, all that's gone. No money, no stress, no need to work for the man, nobody needing to set the course for your life, no artificial processed chemicalized food, no heavy metals in the water system. But there is the sun, and there's meditation, and there's contemplation without ego-driven thought. There are earthly things up here, and it's easier to identify the good ones. 
But what about excitement, football, good films? Well, the nerves which produce the need for excitement are gone, so there's no need for excitement. What passes for a mind doesn't need entertaining, though it can still converse. I wonder at this point if this is a propaganda story calling for a life of meditation and contemplation. Possibly. Perhaps it's possible to create pure heaven on earth with a tweaking, admittedly a major one, of the system. Even with all the human drives and the system as it is, there are steps that can be taken. Discarding mainstream corporate media would be a good start. Realising that money is not backed by anything tangible and that the pieces of paper we use are simply promises to pay would also be positive. And trying to see that a lot of the hate and bitterness that takes the joy out of life can be controlled and lessened with a bit more contemplation. Instead of turning on the TV to be shown someone else's view of life every second and to constantly be given limiting options on thought, we could take time to enjoy silence or to read a book that fires the imagination. Meet the neighbours and try to establish human relationships just like those in heaven, without ego. Show the other person that you're not talking to them for any reason other than to share some contact, that it is possible to have human relationships on earth that haven't bought into the propaganda, that not buying into the propaganda is actually allowed, not just something people talk about. Existing in a pure state, just like at the very beginning. Now, returning to heaven, here's the fun part. All the souls in heaven are aware of their previous earthly existence and so recognise others that they shared events with. Previously famous people get recognised, therefore, but without that driven lust on earth, they are just a curious and amusing oddity until the memory fades. There is no screaming their names and certainly no mobbing. The souls that were truly connected on earth are observed to gravitate towards others magically, so out of all those billions of souls, there's a stronger than average chance that they will run into each other. The souls seem to last what could be calculated as around 50 to 100 years in the first realm before moving into the next, by then physically and mentally unrecognisable from their previous earthly identity. So certain figures from the last 50 years exist in the first realm, and this brings up some interesting encounters. It's perfectly true that Lee Harvey Oswald has met John Fitzgerald Kennedy on a number of occasions, and of course without the emotions of pain, hate, anger, bitterness, guilt, etc. to inhibit their interaction, they can almost joke about those big couple of days in Dallas. Memories now fading, but still clear enough to recall their final days on Shakespeare's stage. Oswald insists that he didn't kill JFK, though he did consider the initial offer, and he was there in Dallas that day. Unfortunately, he can't remember why. As previously mentioned, you probably know my views on the Kennedy assassination. I haven't made my mind up about it, same with 9-11, but clearly the official story has got a lot of holes in it. Continuing, in this realm, with nothing to gain from lying and nothing at stake, there is no reason to disbelieve him. Famous and non-famous murderers gravitate towards their former victims, especially those to whom they did horrible things, and everyone can discuss it together with no thoughts of superiority and inferiority, moral or otherwise. Please note that I've chosen the word heaven as a recognisable name for the first realm following the soul's time in a physical body on earth. It's not the religious heaven that would not permit a murderer to ascend to the good place. John Lennon and George Harrison have sung together with Mark David Chapman in attendance. Chapman was the murderer of John Lennon. Does that sound incredible, ridiculous? It's actually perfectly natural and right because the barriers have been lifted and things can be seen without all the conditioning that must by its very nature skew one's judgment. Many people exist in this place or look like people for a while anyway. I look back now and again to my life, as many do, and I can see things that I never saw while I was there. 
I can now see all kinds of ways that I could have achieved what I have now, the peace and lucidity, without my time on earth having to end. Of course, that's the elusive nature of what the Creator has created. He is not driving events, really, just putting something in place and leaving it for others to play with, to improve, and sometimes to destroy. All that you touch and see, taste and feel, love and hate, save and waste, give, deal, buy, beg, borrow or steal, all you do, say, eat, everyone you meet, all you slight, everyone you fight, all that is now, gone and to come, is right here now. So that's the end of my story, Pure Heaven. Now some of you may well have noticed that I uh, borrowed some lyrics from Pink Floyd at the end there, that's from the last song on the Dark Side of the Moon album. The song is called Eclipse. And while we're talking about Pink Floyd, in that review that I read earlier from uh, Apple Sucks Anthony Rocks in Canada, they mentioned um, Bowman going through the Stargate in 2001. And I'm also going to include in the show notes, if it's still online, a wonderful mashup that someone did of the song Echoes by Pink Floyd with the Stargate scene from 2001. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. Just thinking about it now, I mean, I haven't read that for years. Reading it out was interesting that it came out as I said, pretty much automatically. And I wonder, are those still my views? I, I honestly couldn't tell you. I, I haven't totally made sense of that. But I think what I'm about, really, in my podcasting, my writing, is ideas. I don't necessarily have solutions. I have seeds that I can plant. But then it's really up to the person to take those seeds and to continue the metaphor, try and grow or cultivate something of worth. I feel in a bit of a daze, actually, after reading that, because it's, it's a bit of a shock. As I said, I haven't read that for years. So worth thinking about, really. I think the bits of the story that I would still concur with and that I feel strongly about is not the idea of not feeling. Because I, mem- I remember when I was... Um, I think I sent that story to someone and they said, "Ah, oh, I get it. Heaven is that you don't feel anything. And I get what he said. And uh, as I mentioned in during the story, you know, a lot of totalitarian states have promised a utopia where... You know, everyone becomes the same, you know, extreme communism, for example. And you don't have to feel anything anymore. And you put everything in the government's hands. What I'm advocating is, in a sense, related to the quote about treating triumph and 
disaster as the two imposters they are and realizing that so much of the stress in life comes from the game that we're all playing and obviously we have to play the game of work you know you have to earn money i've always been quite a big fan of peter joseph and the zeitgeist movement like any movement it's got some holes in it it's got holes that you can pick in it and some people have very strong feelings that zeitgeist is some sort of evil organization which i don't agree with the reason i mention zeitgeist is that they have proposed a resource-based economy if you ever heard the name jack fresco he's dead now but he lived into his late 90s i think if i find some good stuff with um, zeitgeist and jack fresco i'll put that in the show notes if you look into money another documentary so you get no uh, shortage of links to look at when you listen to my podcast <laughs> money as debt and also the the story the money myth exploded again i'll put them in the show notes you'll have enough to keep you going for a long time here money is a game you know and it's not backed by gold and most of it is digital obviously money is important in that what it can do but it's um, in a way it's an expression of an idea it's faith-based money but realizing that we are living in this game i don't think oswald did shoot kennedy certainly not alone but let's say for argument's sake let's take mark david chapman and john lennon they could meet in heaven and with the release of the pressure of life and the pressure to earn money and earn status if you're into that and raise children and so forth without all that pressure perhaps mark david chapman could explain to john lennon why he did what he did and perhaps john lennon would understand it that was what i was getting at i think with this story try and live in a in a more pure state not without feeling but going back to the traveling light idea and in fact that segues in, into uh, another ted talk by a guy called yossi ginsberg talking about how um one of my activities influences another i actually heard about this guy through one of the english books <laughs> new english file they had a thing about yossi he was stranded in the amazonian forests of bolivia or jungles of bolivia for three weeks starving alone lonely desperate and that led me to uh, his ted talk which is called on thinking out of the box and one of the things Yossi talks about is he learned very quickly that a human in survival mode is not like a human in normal, civilized life. You discover strength and spirit that you never knew you had. The other thing he said, which links back to something I was talking about earlier, you learn very quickly that anxiety and panic waste energy. So after the initial panic, this is what David Blaine learned. Again, calling back to a previous episode, episode 36, David Blaine learned when he'd been in the box, that there's a certain food anxiety, as well as hunger, it's withdrawal from the processed food that's basically all the food we buy in urban areas. You learn that what's the point of anxiety and panic? Okay, if it's over your child being kidnapped, if it involves another person, fair enough. But if you're on your own, you realise that to preserve yourself, it just wastes energy. So what's the point of it? You know, if it achieves something, then fine. And it might achieve a bit of adrenaline. But the problem with adrenaline is that when it dies down, you get a horrible crash and you find that all your energy has been sapped because adrenaline is not really energy. It's almost like fake energy in a sense. It's like nervous energy. But if you watch this TED Talk from Yossi Ginsberg, try and apply that to normal life. You know, you don't have to be in the Amazonian jungle to feel that. And you don't have to die and go to heaven to change your view and to live as if those other conditions apply. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being civilised. You know, I think society has gone forward, but um, 
once again, calling back to something I was talking about earlier, Chris Ryan's Civilized to Death book. And he talks about, yeah, society has gone forward, but it's also gone back. You know, it's two steps forward, one step or two steps back. So I'd like to end this, let's end with that thought or idea, you know, practicing some Buddhist style detachment from energy sapping negative thoughts. If they have a purpose, if a certain anxiety or stress drives you on through adrenaline, that's fine, but you can't rely on that forever. At some point, you need to be calm. Look after yourself and your family. Prioritize financial survival, but don't get hung up on money because it's, it is illusory to some extent. And try to travel light in your mind. And with that, I'm going to say thank you very much for listening. If you've been with me on this latest journey of ours, Ratings and reviews for the show are always welcome. If you're interested in life coaching, please email me, lifeandlifeonlypod at gmail.com. I can make a guarantee that it will be a journey and you will get a lot out of it at a very affordable price. Tell your friends about the show and share links. And until the next time, take care of yourselves in this crazy world. Perhaps take comfort with the fact the world has always been crazy. It might seem crazier than normal, but it might be because we're getting more news. Who knows? Anyway, all the best from me and goodbye. fantastic and I hope you enjoyed it there is a point is there a point to all this let's find a point is there a point to my act I would say there is I have to the world is like a ride at an amusement park and when you choose to go on it you think it's real because that's how powerful our minds are and the ride goes up and down and round and round it has thrills and chills and it's very brightly colored and it's very loud and it's fun for a while. Some people have been on the ride for a long time and they begin to question, is this real or is this just a ride? And other people have remembered and they come back to us and they say, hey, don't worry, don't be afraid ever because this is just a ride. And we kill those people. <laughs> Shut him up. We have a lot invested in this ride. Shut him up. Look at my furrows of worry. Look at my big bank account and my family. This has to be real. It's just a ride. But we always kill those good guys who try and tell us that. You ever notice that? And let the demons run amok? But it doesn't matter because it's just a ride. And we can change it anytime we want. It's only a choice. No effort, no work, no job, no savings of money. A choice right now between fear and love. The eyes of fear want you to put bigger locks on your door, buy guns. Close yourself off the eyes of love. Instead, see all of us as one. Here's what we can do to change the world right now to a better ride. Take all that money we spend on weapons and defense each year and instead spend it feeding, clothing, and educating the poor of the world, which it would many times over, not one human being excluded, and we can explore space together, both inner and outer, forever in peace. Thank you very much. You've been great. I hope you enjoy it. London, you're fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much.